remain standing as we go to the text from which my assignment comes today, Acts chapter number 9, Acts chapter number 9, and uh, like last week, I'm going to read a, a little bit of scripture here, more than just two or three verses, so hang in there, Acts chapter 9, verse number 1, the scripture says, then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from them to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, and the way is the way they would describe the early Christian church, if they found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And he journeyed, and he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. He was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there, were certain, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision... He has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, For he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Last week, as well as this week, our text invites us to experience Jesus on a road. Last week, it was the dusty road that led to Emmaus, where two despondent disciples were left in despair because they witnessed the death of their Savior. This road today is the Damascus road. It's a road of a different ilk. It's the road that was traveled by the early church's greatest enemy, Saul of Tarsus, who was traveling that road in order to torture Christians who put their faith in the resurrection of Christ. Two broken roads. One road broken by despair, despondency, because life did not turn out the way they had expected. Their expectations weren't met. Their dreams were dashed because Life had taken a loved one from them, but it was a broken road. The other road was broken by rage and anger and bitterness and 
a deeply held conviction that was incontrovertibly a wrong conviction. Nevertheless, it too was a broken road. Have you ever traveled down a broken road? A road broken perhaps by heartache, disappointment, unmet expectations, a situation that suddenly came upon you that you didn't expect, a broken road because of a poor choice or an unwanted health diagnosis, a betrayal, a tragedy, an abuse, an addiction. Have you ever traveled down a broken road? Life is a broken road. One plus one very rarely equals two in life. Dreams don't often match up with reality. Life is filled with potholes and stop signs and detours and unlit back roads. And Maybe you've traveled on a broken road. If you're here today and either you have traveled on a broken road or you are on a broken road, then you're in the right place this morning. Because I want to minister to you on how God blesses our broken roads. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, speak to our hearts. We open them wide to receive your personal word for each one of us. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, you may be seated. As we come to the text, we find the conversion of perhaps the greatest propitiator of the gospel that our world has ever known. It's the conversion of the Apostle Paul, formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. And he is traveling this road called Damascus, as we said, to kill Christians. And he describes himself, as he looks back on this experience, as a madman of sorts. And it's easy to think that Paul was indeed a madman before Christ, because who goes to torture people just because they believe something different than what you believe? And when Paul looks back on his life prior to Christ, he calls himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1, um, verses, verse number 13, he says, I was a blasphemer. This isn't just somebody who says unkind things about divine things. This is somebody whose speech and behavior is intended to humiliate or abuse someone else. He calls himself not just a blasphemer, but he says, I was a persecutor. And this is not just somebody who makes fun of somebody for what they believe, but this is somebody who hunts people down like they would an animal in order to torture them. He says, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. He says, I was an injurious person. Somebody whose pride and the insolence of their heart is so deliberately and contemptuously against people that they actually plot and they actually calculate how they can harm somebody. And so Paul describes himself when looking back on how he lived and how he was before his conversion to Christ in these ways, a blasphemer, a persecutor, an injurious person. And I wouldn't argue the fact that that would describe somebody who is pretty much a madman. But I think there's a better description for Saul, who he was before Paul, and that's a religious zealot. See, we don't know much about him and because we don't talk a lot about him in the church, but the Bible does reveal who he was before he came to Christ. Paul was a appointed, very elite, very astute member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a group of 71 justices, if you will, sort of like Supreme Court justices of our day, who were elected, who were appointed in order to protect the law 
of the prophets and of Moses. They were to make sure that nobody twisted and nobody messed with the message that was passed down to them by the, through the law and by the prophets. And so he was in actuality sold out to the coming of the Messiah. He wasn't against the coming of the Messiah. He was sold out to it. So then why did he persecute those who believed in who was truly the Messiah? Because of the deeply held conviction that Jewish people, Hebrew people had, that the Messiah or the sign of the Messiah would be that the hand of God, the blessing of God would be on the Messiah. And the scripture even talks about that if you read through the Old Testament. And so when Jesus came and Jesus was crucified on a cross, it was clearly a sign to them that he could not be the Messiah because being crucified on a cross, if you read from the Old Testament, is akin to being cursed by God. And so how could somebody who claimed to be the Messiah, who was supposed to be blessed by God, also be cursed by God? And so when you read Paul talking about him preaching Christ crucified in 1 Corinthians, he says preaching Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews. And the reason why it was a stumbling block to the Jews is because the Jews could not wrap their brain around how somebody who was supposed to be blessed by God would suffer a death that indicated that they were cursed by God. And to say that the Messiah would be hung on a tree was blasphemous. It was, the matter of fact, the word stumbling block, when he talks about preaching Christ crucified, is a stumbling block to the Jews, is where we get the word scandalous from. It was a scandalous doctrine. It was a doctrine that was punishable by death. To blaspheme God in such a way to call the Messiah cursed was to blaspheme God and therefore was punishable by death. And so Paul, when he goes on the Damascus Road to find Christians of that way is actually executing the uh, obligations of his office as a member of the Sanhedrin in order to protect the law against anybody that would distort it in that way. And so in his mind, he is doing what is absolutely the right thing to do. These people need to be put to death. They are blaspheming God. They are blaspheming God's word. Matter of fact, he goes to, as we're told, Damascus. And the reason why he went to Damascus is because in and around the Judea area, you couldn't openly say that you believed in the resurrected Messiah. They didn't tolerate that in that area, and you would be immediately put to death. So Christians who may have gotten saved in and around the Judean area, they fled for refuge in the city of Damascus. Matter of fact, the people of the way early on were thought to be part of a community that was started by the relatives of Jesus himself. Isn't that interesting if that were true? So Jesus is literally standing in between his relatives and the people of the early church and an oncoming enemy who is going there to take them out. Kind of brings a little bit of a different twist to why Jesus met Paul on that Damascus road. Not just to convert him, but also to protect those who were his family. And so Paul is on this broken road, but he's on a wrong road. 
And the wrong road is something that he doesn't think is wrong, which is the essence of why it's broken. Have you ever gotten on a road that everybody else knew was the wrong road for your life, but you were convinced that it was the right road for your life? And so you wouldn't listen to reason. You wouldn't listen to anybody talk to you. You thought everybody just didn't know what they were talking about. And you happen to be smarter than everybody else. See, I don't think we ought to go by public opinion, but if everybody around you is telling you something is wrong, then guess what? It's probably wrong, especially if those who are around you are telling you it's wrong, love you, and, and care about where you're going in life. But we just march on our broken road because when we get something in our mind, we just think, well, that's the way we got to go. But here's what I love about God. God blessed Paul on that broken road. Because it was that broken road where Paul met Jesus, where Paul saw the light, not just any light, but the light, not just any light, but the light that John says was the life of men, the light that shined in darkness and darkness could not comprehend it, the life that was not just sent by God, but but who was with God from the beginning and who was God and through whom all things were made, the light that became flesh and blood and dwelt among us, the light, John says, that was full of grace and truth. The light that Eugene Peterson says was the real thing who moved into our neighborhood. And on that broken road, Paul met Jesus. That broken road was a blessed road. Oftentimes in life, we see our broken roads just as um, roads where we regret things. But oftentimes that broken road can be a blessed road. And Paul is not just casually converted. Paul's conversion is the real deal. It wasn't an emotional walk down a church aisle after a stirring message was preached that after you get saved resulted in the same behavior the next day. That wasn't Paul's conversion. Paul's conversion was the real thing. Paul's conversion caused life change. Paul didn't need anybody to give him a call that week and say, make sure you come to church again next week. Paul met Jesus on the Damascus Road. And when Paul met Jesus on the Damascus Road, his old self died. It was the death of Saul and the birth of the apostle Paul. He was a different person, not the same person who he used to be. Didn't continue to do the same stuff that he went into church that particular week doing didn't leave church smoking it and drinking it and shacking up with it he left church and he was changed he was different he wasn't practicing the same stuff grace had changed him it wasn't an excuse to just get the best of what God had to offer but still live the same old way Paul had something genuine and something real took place on the inside of him matter of fact when he describes his conversion he says something happened not to me, but in me. You see, the church needs in me conversions, not to me conversions. Matter of fact, listen to what the Apostle Paul says about his conversion. He says, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, not to me. A lot of people get God revealed to them. Just, just up here. It may, it, all of a sudden, it thinks click up there. And that's, that's a good first step. But too many conversions don't change you. Too many conversions require somebody keeps calling you. Hey, coming to church this week? Coming to church this week? How about discipleship? How about, how about discipleship? How about discipleship? Oh, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. But in me conversions, nobody has to tell you. 
Emmy conversion is something you, be, you become guided by the Holy Spirit. And you can't get enough of Jesus. And, and you don't want that sin that you used to have before. It's amazing how people still have sin that is chronic in their life after they give their life to Jesus. And I'm just wondering, did we have an in me conversion or a to me conversion? Don't shout me down because I'm preaching real good right now. We need to see Jesus for who he is. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said. He said, after, not only did God do something in me, but when God did something in me, I I asked him, I said, what do you want me to do, Lord? See, when you're converted, truly converted, truly saved, it's no longer about what you want to do with your life. The question is, what do you want me to do, Lord? Not what do I want me to do, Lord? Not, 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 oh, this is going to inconvenience me, Lord. But God, what do you want me to do? My life is not my own. When you get saved, that, that's the, that is the, the, the motto. My life is not my own, but I've been bought with a price. Therefore, I will glorify God in my body and in my spirit, which belongs to him. It's no longer about the choices that I want for me, but it's now the choices that God wants for me. And we become sold out to something that is greater than ourselves. And if this sounds like like something strange to you, it's because we have gotten a watered-down version of what it means to be born again. Being born again means you're changed. It means you're different. It means life starts all over again for you. You don't, you don't, you don't, you're not like who you used to be. You're changed. If any man be in Christ, if any woman be in Christ, they are a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And the problem is we don't preach that anymore. And so because we don't preach that anymore, we got to me conversions and not in me conversions. He says, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. There's so much in this text, but let me just say translation, God blessed the broken road because it led me straight to him. See, oftentimes, that's what happens on our broken road. And I don't know who this is for, but I know it's probably for more than one person. God wants you to know that that broken road caused you to stop going your own way. That broken road caused you to stop relying on yourself. That broken road humbled you under the mighty hand of God. That broken road opened your eyes to your need for a Savior. That broken road caused you to sell out instead of being lukewarm. God bless that broken road because it led us straight to him. I don't know about you, but I'd rather have a broken road that leads me to Jesus than a road that is not broken that leads me further and further away from him. He ends his testimony and he says this, he says, and he says, after I met Jesus on the broken road, I went to Damascus, but this time not as an enemy of the faith, but now as an apostle of the faith. Don't tell me God doesn't know how to bless your broken road. And here's what I want us to explore today. How does God bless our broken road? How does he do it? Three things I want to give you. The first way God blesses our broken road is by pursuit. The road that you would at least expect Paul to meet Jesus on was the Damascus road. I mean, think about this. This is the road that, that he's going to destroy or torture Christians. And so uh, I don't understand why, why Jesus would meet him there in order to save him. I understand why Jesus would meet, it, meet him there in order to stop him. 
I understand why Jesus would meet him there in order to slap him. But I don't understand why Jesus would meet him there in order to save him. Because when you look at the apostle Paul, I mean, he's on his way to go torture Christians. And so I'm thinking, yeah, God's going to show up. But God's not going to show up to do something good for you, Paul. God's going to go up, show up to, to stop you from what you're doing. And I mean, think about it from the perspective of the, the people or the Christians who are in Damascus. They know of the apostle Paul. They hear of him as Saul of Tarsus. They know he's coming in order to torture them. And so you got to imagine. Imagine they are in all sorts of fear, but Jesus shows up in the middle of that Damascus road, and one of the things he does do is he stops the apostle Paul from carrying out the torture. And this is a side note, but I'm glad that God knows how to stop things that the devil sends our way. I'm glad that God knows how to stop the assignments that were meant to take us out. I'm glad that God knows how to stop the situations that are supposed to set us back. I know I'm glad that God knows how to stop the cancer that was supposed to take us out. Stop the job that we were supposed to lose from causing us to go broke. I don't know about all the things that God stops, but what I do know is the reason why you and I are all here today is because God stops stuff in our life that we don't ever even know about. And so I understand why he stops them. I get that. I understand where, why he even slaps them. I get that. I don't understand why he saves him. What was there that was good in the Apostle Paul? What was redeemable about him? Why would God want to save somebody that all he should have done was stop and strike? Listen to me, because God's pursuit, this is such an important spiritual point, because God's pursuit is not based on our current actions. God's pursuit is based on our prepacked purpose. Let me say it again. God's pursuit is not based on our current actions. God's pursuit of us is based on our pre-packed purpose. Notice what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians when he's looking back on his Damascus Road experience. He says, but when it pleased the Lord who separated me, watch this, from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. He separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. Before I had done anything good or bad, God had already pre-packed me with a purpose. Before I traveled down the broken road, before I got lost a time or two, before I picked up pains along the way, before life piled all the junk on me, before I, I lost sight of me, God put a purpose on on the inside of me. And the reason why God pursued me by his grace is not because of the actions that I was currently involved in, but because of the prepackaged purpose that he put on the inside of me even before I was in my mother's womb. And you might be here today and you might feel unusable because of what the broken road has done to you, but I want to assure you that God's purpose for your life still stands and God will pursue you, not based on what you're currently doing, but based on what he he knows he created you for. God's purpose for your life will stand. He will peel back the layers of pain. He will peel back the layers of all the nonsense, and your purpose will eventually emerge. Just keep your heart open to God. God pursues, not based on our actions, but God pursues based on his prepacked purpose. Imagine when Paul heard God say the words, he's a chosen vessel. 
onto me. Have you ever felt unchosen? Come on, we all have. And it's like, God, God's like, I, I need you to do this. And you're like, who, who me? Seriously? You, you, you want me to do that? God, I, I don't feel like I'm chosen. Yeah, but, but you are chosen. I don't deserve to be chosen, but, but you are chosen. I haven't earned the right to be chosen, but you are chosen. I don't know if I can handle being chosen, but, but you can't handle being chosen. Listen to me. Everybody who's on a broken road right now, you are, whether you feel like it or not, whether you realize it or not, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, chosen to show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness darkness into this marvelous life. It doesn't really matter what you feel like. It matters what it is. And God has chosen you before the foundations of the earth, before you were in your mother's womb. He's chosen you. And one of the ways God blesses our broken road is he pursues us, not based on our actions, but based on his pre-packed purpose for our life. The second way that God blesses our broken road, and this sounds counterintuitive, but trust me, it's a blessing. Second way is pain. Pain. Notice the light. The light of God causes Paul to fall to the ground, and when he tries to open up his eyes, he can't see. And even though he can't see, did you notice he recognizes that the Lord is standing before him? Who are you, Lord? He's blinded, but he can see better than he saw before. He's blinded. But he sees something that he was missing when it was right in front of his physical eyes. I don't believe that all pain is bad pain. Matter of fact, I believe if you're a Christian, no pain is bad pain. I believe that if you're a Christian, that God bottles all of your pain. Matter of fact, I don't just believe that. I know that. Because the scripture says that he bottles every one of my tears. And he's not just co collecting our tears in order that he might reminisce about the pains behind those tears. He's collecting those tears so that he can repurpose that pain. I don't believe that if you are a Christian that there is bad pain. I believe every pain is usable in the hands of God that if you're a believer. Not all pain is bad pain. Matter of fact, let me give you an example you all can relate to. And something that I've experienced in my life on, on, on more occasions than I probably should have. The pain that you feel after eating two dozen cookies. <laughs> Anybody else ever experience a pain like that? Come on, let me, let me get some love on this one. Right? I mean, you just, you know, when, they, when they're going down, I mean, they are feeling good, right? I mean, come on, nobody, does anybody really just, I mean, maybe you do, and maybe that's why you don't struggle with your weight, but who can just grab two little Oreos from the Oreo sleeve? Like, you just got to grab the sleeve, grab you, grab you some milk, sit down on the couch, and before you know it, the whole sleeve is gone. I mean, and then you look, and oh, that was good, can I get another sleeve? But, but something happens after you eat all the cookies. There's a pain. And it's like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Oh. I feel bad about that. And then the pain becomes real intense. You're like, God, please take this pain away. God, if you take this pain away, I promise I'll never eat two dozen chocolate chip cookies or Oreo cookies ever again. God, I, I promise I'll control myself. God, I'll promise that I, I won't indulge like that and just listen to my flesh. God, whatever you have to do, just take this pain away. Pain has this, this unique way of rerouting our lives. 
Pain has this unique way of causing us to call on God. Pain has this unique way of getting us to reconsider our adverse actions. Pain has this unique way of humbling us. Pain has this unique way of, of shaking us out of self-dependence. And pain has a way of breaking us so that God can, can bless us. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 30 says, Blows and bruises remove evil. Beatings cleanse the inner part. Job said, for he bruises and he binds up. He wounds, but his hands make whole. I call it the two touches of God. Did you know that God is always at least a two-touch God? He never just touches you one time. And when you're on a broken road, God will touch you at least two times. The first time he touches you on a broken road, it's to bruise you. Now, some of you are like, what you mean? What you mean? Remember what happened to the apostle Paul as he was on that broken road? He, he, Jesus appeared to him, and the light from Christ caused him to fall to the ground. And when he tried to open up his eyes, he couldn't see. But did you know that blinding was a blessing? And the reason why that blinding was a blessing, because if he wasn't blinded in that moment, he would have still kept going down the wrong road. But because he was blinded for that moment, he was all ears to what Jesus had to say. But listen, listen, listen. Jesus didn't break him. Jesus didn't bruise him in order to bury him. Jesus bruised him in order to break him. God never bruises us in order to bury us. God bruises us just to break us, to break us out of our independence, to break us out of our selfishness, to break us out of our destructive behavior, to break us out of a stronghold, to break us out of a bad relationship, to break us out of an addiction. And God loves us so much that sometimes he's got to touch us in order to break us so that he can eventually bless us because the pre requisite to being blessed is being broken. You can't get blessed without being broken. A broken and a contrite heart. I will in no wise, no wise cast out. If this doesn't make sense, for you, sense to you, listen to this because I want to show you how God does this. Because some people get confused about how God does this. Proverbs chapter 27 verse 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Now, wait, 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 wait a second, wait a second. Wound and friend ain't supposed to be in the same sentence. Friends are not supposed to wound. If I asked you to give me the characteristics of your best friend, I would bet you, absent of me bringing this scripture to your attention, nobody would put wounds me when I need it on the list. But there are times when we need somebody to wound us, where we need somebody to get in our grill, where we need somebody to tell us what time it is, when we need somebody to correct us of wrong behavior, where we need somebody to say, no, that's not right, and if you keep doing that, you are going to be in a mess, and no, I'm not going to support that behavior. I'll always be here for you, but no, I cannot condone that, and no, I can't turn the other way from that, and no, I can't turn a blind eye to that, because that is wrong, and when a friend tells Tells you what time it is, whoo, it hurts. How many of you know Jesus is a friend that sticks closer than a brother? 
And if Jesus is a friend that sticks closer than a brother, there will be times in our lives where God will have to wound us, not to bury us, but in order to bless us. That's how God does it. He doesn't do it to keep us from coming back. He doesn't do it to permanently scar us. He does it to prepare our hearts for the second touch that he wants to bring in. See, God is always interested in that second touch, but God can't give you the second touch sometimes until your heart is ready for it. And so God in his mastery and God in his divinity has to prepare us for that second touch. And so after Paul is broken, God says to a man named Ananias, go lay your hands on Saul so that he can receive his sight. I want you to know that God's bruising wasn't permanent. When God bruises you, when God wounds you, it's only for a season. It's until you're broken. And then once you're broken, God repairs. God begins the repairing process. Ananias went his way, verse 17. He entered the house. Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. And so when he received food, he was strengthened. And then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. The people who he was going to kill are now the people who are comforting him and helping to establish his faith. But I want you to notice the second touch, the touch of blessing. The touch that gave Paul what he didn't have before. Not just sight, but vision. Not just the ability to look with his eyes, but the ability to see further than his eyes could look. The touch that didn't just heal him, but made him whole. The touch that didn't just give him back what he lost, but blessed him with what he never had. The touch that didn't just repair him to his original condition, but the touch that catapulted him to be better than he ever was. The touch that didn't just help him to function, but the touch that empowered him to walk by faith. Notice God's bruise was only a setup so that God could bless the apostle Paul. And I want to encourage somebody, don't get discouraged by the first touch. If life has broken you, it's just a matter of time before God comes along and touches you a second time so that God can bless you in a way that you would have never had unless you were broken the first time. He's a God of two touches. I remember the blind men in the Bible. Jesus laid his hands on them. He took his hands off. He said, how's it look? They said, I only see men like trees walking. I want you to notice Jesus didn't say, well, only one touch for you. When he come back, he touched him a second time. And when he touched him the second time, for the first time in their entire existence, they saw in living color. Don't get stuck on the first touch. God's got a second touch. The first touch might have broke you, but the second touch is going to bless you. And by the way, did you notice where God sent, um, where God sent Paul for the second touch? To Straight Street. I mean, you got to love the nuance of Scripture. And God, God could have sent him to any street, but he sends him to straight street. And I think this is significant because Paul was on a broken road, and God sent him for a second touch on straight street. It was as if God was saying, I know how to straighten out your broken places. I know how to straighten out your crooked paths. I know how to make whole the stuff that wasn't going the right way in your life. I know how to get you on a road that doesn't have all the potholes that you've been falling into over and over again. I know how to make your crooked places 
is straight. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own, on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall make your paths straight. Do you know what I love about that word straight? It's the Hebrew word arach. O-R-A-C-H. You know what it literally describes? It describes a path that is beaten so flat because troops ran over it. So many troops ran over that path that all of a sudden all the weeds and all the, the things that were, were standing in the way of progress on that path were cleared out of the way. Do you know what God is saying? Listen to me, those of you that are on the broken road right now. God is saying that if you will just trust in me with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and in all your ways, even on the broken path, acknowledge me. I'll eventually send the troops of heaven down the path that you're trying to progress on so that you can make up for lost time. My goodness, God wants to bless your broken road. One of the ways that God blesses your broken road is through pain. The last way that God blesses your broken road is through pieces. He blesses your broken road through pursuit, through pain, and through pieces. We have the advantage of of looking back on the life of the Apostle Paul and seeing what God did with his life. We have the advantage of, of, of knowing the end of the story. But when Paul got up from the ground and opened his eyes, couldn't see, he didn't know how the story was going to end. And you know what I believe he saw? Not with his physical eyes, but on the inside. I think he saw, saw shattered pieces. Shattered pieces of his entire life. I mean, Paul's conversion was amazing. Matter of fact, Paul's conversion is one of the greatest proofs of the resurrection of Christ that we, that the world has ever known. Matter of fact, the early church and even the church now should look back on the conversion of the Apostle Paul and say, that is one of the greatest proofs of the resurrection other than Jesus appearing to all the people that he appeared to in the 40 days after his resurrection. Why? What else changed somebody? who thought it was blasphemy to preach a crucified Savior to one who preached it himself. What else could have made somebody who was an enemy and an assassin of the faith into an apostle of the faith unless he personally witnessed the resurrected Christ? His story is one of the greatest stories of evidence for the resurrection of Christ in the history of mankind. But Paul didn't understand that's why the way his story was going to end. When Paul opened up his eyes, I believe all Paul saw was shattered pieces. The shattered piece of wasting all of those years growing in the knowledge of the law and the ways of the Hebrew people so that he could be a member of the Sanhedrin. All wasted now, broken pieces. The broken piece of the education that he had to acquire in order to be elevated to a place like that in his society, now all useless to him. The broken piece of intellectualism that he had attained to that caused him, that enabled him to speak in the many languages that he did. The broken piece of all of the contacts that he had made in the religious and political arenas of life, now contacts he would never use again. The broken piece of 
embarrassment from having been so boldly wrong. The broken piece of the business acumen that he had achieved in order to be able to support himself and be a member of the Sanhedrin. All of that now broken pieces, shattered pieces that he would never use again. Maybe you're on a broken road. And maybe when you look around, all you see is shattered pieces. Shattered pieces of abuse. Shattered pieces from a divorce. Shattered pieces of shame. Shattered pieces of wasted time. Shattered pieces of wasted relationships. And shattered pieces of an education that you lost the opportunity to use. Shattered pieces of what could have been. Shattered pieces of what you once had and owned that you had lost. The broken road often is littered with shattered pieces. But what looks like shattered pieces to us is all part of the package to God. You see, Paul needed the shattered piece of being a Hebrew of all Hebrews. He needed the shattered piece of knowing the law the way that he did so that when he preached Jesus to a society that was opposed to Jesus, he could nuance his way through and he could unveil unveil Christ to them in a way that somebody who did not know the law could have never done. The shattered piece of intellectualism that he had that caused him to learn all of those languages and the degrees that he attained to enabled him to walk into Mars Hill and and to debate and reason with the philosophers and the smarty pants of his days and in order to convince them that Jesus was the Messiah, the shattered pieces of special connections and familiarity with the legalities of his time helped him maneuver his way in and out of the prison sentences that were stacked against him and the knowledge of his rights of being a Roman citizen saved his life on more than one occasion. The shattered pieces of having a bolder than bold personality caused him to go into places that other people were afraid to preach the gospel in. But Paul walked right into there because God took that shattered piece, the shattered piece of the business acumen that the apostle Paul had helped him to walk into Ephesus and infiltrate the economy and even turn the silversmiths and blacksmiths to the Lord. God used every one of those shattered pieces because what looks like shattered pieces on a broken road is all part of the package to God. There is no pain that God will ever waste and nothing on your broken road that God will leave behind. If you will trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and in all your ways acknowledge him, God will send the troops of heaven down the road that you are on and make straight all of your paths. God blesses our lives with pieces, pieces that are shattered and pieces that don't seem to make any sense. God has a way way of repurposing the broken pieces and God has a way of picking up 
the broken pieces. And God has a way of recommissioning the broken pieces. And God has a way of working all things together for the good. And God has a way of repurposing the pain. And God has a way of using the scars. And God has a way of, of those hurts becoming healing in somebody else's life. And God has a way of causing the platform of pain to become the message that you encourage other people with. I can only tell you this, that I have grown throughout my entire Christian existence, both in good times and in bad times, but the times when my anointing has been catapulted to a whole new level is when the pain was too much that I didn't even know if I was going to make it through another day, but God has a way of repurposing. The packages, although it looks like shattered pieces to us, it looks like a mosaic in the making to our Heavenly Father. And what I love about the Apostle Paul is he, he looks back and he knows that God blesses broken roads. And, and, and how do I know he knows it? Because he says some crazy things as he introduces his writings to the different churches that he winds up writing to. And one of the things that really blows me away is is how he starts the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 3. He says this, he says, Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God. He said this after he had been shipwrecked. Blessed be God. After he had been left for dead. Blessed be God. After he had been in hunger and in thirst. Blessed be God. After he had been in nakedness, blessed be God. After he had been in perils of his own countrymen, blessed be God. After he had been in perils of those he didn't know, blessed be God. After he had been thrown in prison, blessed be God. After he had been beaten with whips and rods, blessed be God. After he had spent a night and a day in the deep, blessed be God. After he had been left for dead, blessed be God. Be God. I'm thinking, Paul, you're crazy. You've lost your mind. Because a better way to introduce yourself would be, would be to say this. Life hasn't been fair to me. God, when is enough enough? God, when's it going to stop? And God, when, when, when am I going to enjoy not times that are difficult, but times that are, are, are smooth sailing. But instead of saying that, the way Paul looks back on his entire life, a life that was riddled with suffering. Blessed be God. Do you know what that phrase means or where it comes from? It comes from the Greek word where we get the English word eulogize from. To eulogize. What, a, what is a eulogy? Well, at a funeral, a eulogy is when you look back. I wish somebody would get this even before I said it. Uh, a, 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 a eulogy is when you're at a funeral and you look back on the life of the person fondly. 
And so Paul is now on the other side of the broken road. And Paul is looking back on what God did when he was walking through the broken road. And Paul somehow understands that God took all of those broken pieces and and used them for good. And so Paul can say with absolute conviction of heart, blessed be God even after shipwreck. And blessed be God even after being without food. And blessed be God even after being a night and a day in the deep. And blessed be God even being after being beaten with whips and chains. And blessed be God. Blessed be God after the divorce. And blessed be God after the bout with cancer. And blessed be God after the loved one died. And blessed be God after I lost my job. And blessed be God even though my kids went astray. And blessed be God. Why can he say blessed be God? Because he knows that God takes all of the broken pieces on the broken road and it incorporates them into his plan for our lives. Blessed be God. Blessed be God. See, some of you are on, on a broken road right now. And all you see is shattered pieces. But God brought you here today so that he can let you know that God blesses broken roads. Would you stand with me?